in a series called uh, We Shall Prevail. And you know the church shall prevail because of what we're going to talk about today. We, the church will prevail because of God's grace. And you know that's what I, I want to address today is, is salvation by grace. Several years ago, uh, when our family lived across the river in uh, Red House, we learned that uh, they were going to close the bridge in order to do some repairs. And so that would cause us to have to take an alternate route, go a longer way around. But this was because, and this was especially difficult, because this is a road that we used every single day. And I, and I knew that was going to happen. And for, for quite a while, I'd come down the hill and make that right, go to the bridge and go across Route 34 all the way down to the church. But one day, I came down to the bottom of the hill and I made that turn, headed toward the bridge, and there was a sign, a barricade that said, bridge closed. And even though I knew it was coming, I just, I couldn't stand the thought of having to, you know, go this long way around. And so I pulled over to this little parking area that's right beside the edge of the bridge. And I got out and I looked across the river and I could see very clearly where I wanted to go. And it was so frustrating because they were working on just one little tiny section of that deck that they had taken out. I could think, man, I could get across there. But then I started thinking, nah, it's, even though it's just like a couple of feet, I, you know, it wouldn't matter if it's just a couple of feet or if it's the entire deck of the bridge. The bridge is closed. You know, when it comes to making our way to God on our own, in our own power, the bridge is closed. We simply do not have access to God because that, that bridge is out. Now, sometimes we think, you know, I'm so close. You know, I've been this good person. But it doesn't matter how good we've been or how bad we've been. The bridge to God is closed because without a 100% of that bridge, we can't cross over to heaven. And I, I want to start this morning with, a, with what is probably a familiar verse with most people. But there's also a verse that may not be so familiar to. It's Romans 3.23. And it says, you know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that verse is a verse that simply says the bridge is closed. All of us have sinned. Some of us think, well, I've only sinned a little bit. Some of us know we've sinned a lot. But again, the scripture is clear. All have sinned. And even one sin is enough to prevent us from coming to God. And there's another verse, though. Verse 24 that follows that. Sometimes we don't connect them. But it says, being justified as a gift by his what? By his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, justify is a word that simply means to be made right. We've been made right with God. And it is God 
who supplies the righteousness that we are lacking. That gap that keeps us from coming to God. God is the one who has supplied that. How did he do that? Well, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He took upon himself the penalty for the gap that was in our lives. And then he supplied the full righteousness of all that we needed in order to have access to God. He became our bridge. And you see, that's called divine accomplishment. It stands in contrast to human achievement, something that we do. Grace is something that God does on our behalf. We don't achieve it in any way. It's a gift, it says. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. He has simply given it to us. And how do we receive a gift? You simply take. You simply receive the gift that is given to you. And you do that by faith. So, you see, salvation is by grace alone. It's by divine achievement, divine accomplishment. It stands in contrast to human achievement. Now, when it comes to making our way to God on our own, in our own power, we are very clear that the bridge is closed. But by His grace, God has built a bridge for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to Acts chapter uh, 15, we, we remember that in Acts 14, at the end of that chapter, that Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey. And when they get back, they, they go to the church that sent them, the church at Antioch, and they report about what all God had done and all that he accomplished through them and how God had opened a, a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's where we kind of pick up here in, uh, in Acts chapter 15. Now, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me this morning in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of them uh, should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for the grace that you have shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we are grateful that even this day and even in this moment, we can come into your presence through his grace. 
through his work. If we can talk to you, then we can make known to you all of our needs and all of our concerns. Lord, we need your grace even in this moment as we look at your scriptures. We need your grace to be able to speak of them accurately and in a way that would be helpful. Lord, we need your grace to be able to hear and we need your grace to be able to respond in obedience and to apply this truth to our own lives. And we call upon you by your grace through Jesus Christ to draw hearts that need salvation to yourself today. And we pray that you would encourage believers and renew in them the great joy of the grace by which they have been saved. And so, Father, we ask these things now in your Son's name. Amen. And you may be seated. And with the coming of these men from Judea, and you remember that's uh, in Palestine, it's a primarily Jewish area, it says that there was great dissension and debate. Now, this is important, these are important issues. I mean, this, this, these are emotional issues. There, there's raised voices. There's great dissension and great debate over this issue. And what's the question that is being debated? Well, it's simply this. What must a person do to be saved? That's the question. What does a person, what does, must a person do in order to be saved? And there's no other question that is more important than that question. It was so significant that it tells us in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, this, this meeting of church leaders was, is, was called the Jerusalem Council, and it was called that primarily because it, the meeting was held in Jerusalem. And... Uh, Throughout history, of the history of the church, at various times, church leaders have met together to be able to deal with certain doctrinal issues. Um, for example, historians recognize seven ecumenical councils that occurred during the first uh, uh, few uh, hundred years of the existence of the church. And all of those dealt with some particular doctrinal question that was plaguing the church. Of those, perhaps the two most significant were the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon. Uh, the council of uh, Nicaea in 321, uh, out of that came uh, the Nicene Creed. Maybe you've heard of that. It was like the first doctrinal statement of what Christians believed. He kind of summarized it and put it all together. And also, the most significant thing probably that came out of that was the establishment of the church of the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is divine. Then, uh, about 150 years later, at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, it was established that Christ actually has two natures. It was established that Christ is fully God, but he's also fully human. And so these are, were important uh, decisions made by the church as a whole. But no council was more important than the Jerusalem council. 
because the Jerusalem Council uh, dealt with the most monumental doctrinal question of all time. What must a person do in order to be saved? And the, the apostles and the elders affirmed the truth for all time that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any human works. Now, that's really what Acts chapter 15 is all about. It's about this Jerusalem council. And in, chapter, in, in, in this chapter, three significant realities about salvation by grace are preserved for us. And they needed to be preserved for generations to come. And the first is this. Salvation by grace will be relentlessly attacked. Let me say that one more time. Listen, salvation by grace has always been relentlessly attacked, and it will always in the future be relentlessly attacked because it's the most important question that any person ever decides upon. And, it'll be, and it will be attacked primarily in two ways. One, it will be attacked by works. It tells us in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, that is the Christians there in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the teaching of these men from Judea, you see, is a direct attack upon the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Because they are teaching that you cannot be saved unless you keep the law of Moses. This is, this is a direct attack. And it's clear, you see, that they're not talking about the ceremonial law. Excuse me, that they're not talking about the moral law. In other words, the Ten Commandments. They're not saying, uh, you, you know, you shouldn't tell a lie or that you shouldn't commit adultery or those kind of things. This is, they're talking about the ceremonial law because they use the word circumcision. And circumcision was a part of the ritual law, the ceremonial law. And the, the, uh, the scribes of that day, the Pharisees of that day, referred to it as circumcision and the whole yoke of the law. In other words, it was all-inclusive of everything included in Judaism. So the law, you have to become a proselyte in order to be saved. In the simplest of terms, these men are advocating salvation by works. It's something that people do or accomplish on their own. And it's the idea that you please God by what you do or what you don't do. You're accepted by God because you keep the rules. And, you know, today we don't ask people to be circumcised. We don't ask people to keep the, the Mosaic law. We don't ask people to make sacrifices. We don't ask people to do all the things that they did in their ritual law. But today, people have developed their own standard of what it means to be righteous. And you, if you think about it, in our culture, in our culture, we live among people where almost everybody perceives themselves to be, quote, a good person. 
We've seen that over and over in interviews. You ask people if they're a good person. Yes, I'm a good person. And you see, what we do is we adapt a standard that is consistent with how we live, our practices. We adopt that, and then we, we say, well, that, now that's our standard, and I'm living up to that standard, so I'm okay. But do you understand that me living up to that standard is human achievement? Whatever the standard is, whether it's an accurate standard of the law or whether it's a made-up standard by people, it still becomes my own human achievement. And if I've accomplished enough good in my life, then I'll be accepted by God. In other words, it's earned. It's deserved. Our works become our bridge to God. Salvation by works is the longest-running heresy in the history of the church. And far from accomplishing salvation, it actually damns all of those who embrace this false doctrine. Salvation by grace will be relentlessly attacked by works. And listen, it will also be attacked by legalism. If you look in verse 4... It tells us that when this delegation from Antioch arrived at Jerusalem, that they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But not everyone was pleased with the report that was given by Paul and Barnabas. It says in verse 5, But some of the sects of the Pharisees, a sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, listen carefully. Law and legalism have much in common. Uh, They're both man-centered and they're both uh, oriented toward human achievement. But there are some, some big differences between works and legalism. Uh, Works comes from the outside and is from the unbelieving. Legalism comes from inside the church, from the believing. Did you get that? Works comes from the outside, from outside the church, from the unbelieving. Legalism comes from the inside, from people who believe. And look at in verse 1, you see the, the, the Judaizers, they imposed circumcision and the whole yoke of the law upon those people as a requirement for salvation. But in verse 5, the legalists imposed circumcision and the whole yoke of the law on people who were believers after salvation. You see the difference? And, and look again at verse 5. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. In other words, these, these men, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he had died on the cross. They believed that he had risen from the dead. They didn't argue that you had to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. What they said was that once you become a believer, then you are obligated to keep the law. It's legalism. You see, why did they think that? Because they couldn't conceive that, that rank pagans could, could 
coming to the church and simply enter the church and immediately be on the same level as these good Jews who've been practicing the law of God all their lives. See, that was just, it was, it was, uh, it was just ludicrous. It was like giving a PhD to a preschooler. It was like calling up a t-ball player to the major leagues. You can't go from being a rank pagan to being on the level of a, of a Jew who's been practicing the law of his life. You, they, so they're imposing this. You've got to come up to us, to our standard. See, they were Christians, but they had not yet realized the, the truth that the, the rituals and the shadows of the old covenant had faded away, had passed away because all of those had been fulfilled in Christ. And that kind of thinking is common in the church today. See, we tell people that they're saved by grace and then we impose on them our standard of righteousness. Did you know that, that everybody has their standard of righteousness? What they think is, constitutes being righteous? You think about their churches, they have dress codes. They tell you what kind of clothes you can wear, what kind of clothes you can't wear. How long your hair can be or how short it has to be. All kinds of things like that. Uh, there, are, uh, there are churches that tell you what kind of music you can listen to, where you can go, what kind of entertainment you can be involved in. You see, it's almost endless as to our standards of righteousness that we would impose on other people. That's called legalism. That's when I impose my standard of righteousness on you. Now, uh, what you call that is... You see, you call that legalism. And it's not just the Pharisees, you see, who attack God's grace. Sometimes it's well-meaning Baptists who attack God's grace. And, and you see, neither the Judaizers nor the legalists understood that if you add anything to grace, it is no longer grace. Can I say that one more time? If you add anything to grace... Any kind of human effort, it is no longer grace. And see, we get the idea sometimes that if I'm going to come to God, I've got to get some things right in my life. I've got to fix something in my life. That's called human achievement. But Jesus says, no, you come to me with all of your mess and I'll fix it. I'll clean you up. I'll make you right. That's called divine accomplishment. And there are only two kinds of religion in the world. There's human achievement and there's divine accomplishment. Either God does it or man does it. And do you realize that Christianity is the only religion in the entire world that is founded upon divine accomplishment? All other religions, humanistic and otherwise are founded upon the principle that there's something that a person must do for their salvation. Must be a good enough person. You have to do these things, do that thing. Christianity says salvation is by grace alone, by divine 
accomplishment. And it's simply received as a gift from God. Now, let me just remind you that there's no person on earth that is so bad that God's grace can't reach them. And there's no person on earth that is so good that they don't need God's grace. And yet there's something, you know, there's something about us that rejects grace. God's grace is one of the most, most wonderful and beautiful things, but there's just something in us that makes it difficult for us to accept God's grace, to receive that. You know, um, grace says, uh, God, I realize I have a problem and I need you to fix it. Human achievement says, God, I've got a problem and I'll fix it. When I do, I'll come to you. There's a big difference. Uh, when uh, when we moved into the house that we we live in now, it needed a lot of renovation. I kind of gutted it and was doing all kinds of work. Some of you guys have been there. You've been in my house and helped me tear it apart. And um, I was working on the inside, not the outside. And my grass started growing, and it started growing longer and longer. Well, when I moved... And we had to move into another place before we could move into this house. I sold everything, even my mower. So my grass was growing. Well, one morning, I come to work on the house, and I notice that my lawn has been mowed. One of my neighbors cut my grass. And there was something in me that said, oh, wow, that's great. But there was something in me that said, that kind of bothered me. Man, he probably thinks I'm a slob. You know, he probably thinks I'm going to be a bad neighbor. And I'm going to do that. What if he thinks I owe him now? You, you, you see how these things work? You, how that works in your mind? And there, you know, there are two kinds of people in the room. There, there are people here that think my mate and my neighbor mows my grass. That's the greatest thing in the world. And there's some of us think my neighbor mows my grass. Well, that really bothers me. See, because we all, see, and it says something, I think, about our perspective of grace. I have a difficult time, honestly, that so often accepting God's grace. And I think many people do as well. You see, God comes to us, and he said, in our sin, and he says to us, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with me. Nothing. You can't be moral enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't do enough good things to be accepted by me. But I have made a way for you to come to me. And it's only possible through my son, Jesus Christ. And it's a gift, and all you have to do is receive it. And but boy, I tell you what, there is something in us that makes it very difficult for us just to receive that gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 kind of summarizes it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. That's God's accomplishment and that not of yourselves it's not human achievement it's the gift of God it's divine accomplishment not as a result of works it's not human achievement so that no one may boast 
See, only pure grace can save us from our sins. So salvation by grace will be relentlessly attacked by works and by legalism. But salvation by grace, because of that, must be repeatedly affirmed. In verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And the matter that they were considering was this question, What must a person do in order to be saved? And in the verses that follow, we see that salvation by grace is affirmed by three different people, three different groups, in six different ways. First, it was, it's affirmed by past revelation. If you look at verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. You may remember that back in Acts chapter 10 that God told uh, Peter that he needed to go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius and, and tell him the gospel. And when Peter did, not only did Cornelius believe, but many other Gentiles with him believed the gospel. And you know what happened? They were saved without becoming proselytes. They were saved without being circumcised, without being made to observe the ceremonial law of Moses. And, and, and his point is simple. The, the legalist has no right to require of the Gentiles what God himself has not required. Because God has given him this clear revelation of what to say and how to approach the Gentiles. So salvation by grace was affirmed by past revelation. It's also affirmed by the gift of the Spirit. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Now, if anybody had argued that the Gentiles were not really saved, then, you see, Peter reminds them that God has given them the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like he did the the Jews on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and did this, they saw the incredible signs of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And we know that it's true because God knows their hearts. God knows who's really saved and who's not. And God poured out His Spirit on them. So it's a validation of the reality of their salvation. It's, it's affirmed by the gift of the Spirit. It's also affirmed by the cleansing of sin. Verse 9. And He made No distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, Peter's point is that the Gentiles receive the forgiveness of their sins and cleansing not by keeping the law, but by faith. Now, what do you have to receive by faith? See, it's not something you do. It's simply something you receive. So what was it they received? They received the grace of God. It's... It shows that when they were cleansed, that they were cleansed by grace. It's also salvation by grace is affirmed by the law's inability to save. Look at verse 10. 
Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, think about it. We haven't been able to keep the law. Our ancestors haven't been able to keep the law. Now, why are we going to put something on these Gentiles that hasn't been effective for us? We couldn't even do it. How are they going to do it? But verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Friends, listen to me. The only way anybody has ever been saved in the history of the world has been by grace. You were, people in the Old Testament were not saved by keeping the law. They were saved by grace. And everybody since then and everybody in the future is saved by grace. We're saved by the grace specifically here of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that promise. Then Paul and Barnabas join the act. And they show us that uh, salvation by grace is affirmed by the working of miracles. Verse 12, all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, only God can do signs and wonders, right? And you see, those signs and wonders reflect the grace and the goodness of God because the signs and wonders that were done were primarily healing of people. Undeserved healing of people. You see, and... and uh, it's not a human achievement. It's a divine accomplishment. And Paul and Barnabas were teaching very clearly that salvation is by grace alone in Jesus Christ. And if God was allowing them to do signs and wonders, then what he was doing was he was verifying their teaching by the signs and wonders. So God is validating through signs and wonders the reality of salvation by grace. And then uh, it, with Peter, and after Peter and, and, and Paul and Barnabas, then James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, stands up and speaks. And he tells us that gr- salvation by grace is affirmed by the prophet's promise, or, or the prof- by prophetic promise. Look at verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree just as is written. And then James quotes Amos chapter uh, 9 verses 11 through 12. And he shows that the Old Testament very clearly predicted that God would save Gentiles. And the big point that he makes is that God will save these Gentiles without them becoming proselytes, without them becoming Jews first, without them having to be circumcised and without them to be having to keep the Mosaic law. That's the big deal. And see, James assures the Jewish audience that, that God bringing these Gentiles into the church is not going to uh, negate God's promise to Israel, that God is still going to fulfill all of his promises 
But his promise is that he's going to bring all men into the kingdom of God by grace. Now, what you see there is that all of these leaders affirm repeatedly that salvation is by grace. And God has said it over and over and over. We could, you know, we could spend all day just reading scriptures that, that verify that salvation is by grace. But you know what? Even though we know that, sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we just really forget that our salvation is by grace. We start to think, well, you know, no wonder God saved me. I'm such a good person. You know that song, Amazing Grace, it says, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Well, did you know that when, we're, that when we're, we've been there for 10,000 years, we will no more be worthy of salvation than when we, the day, very day we were saved? Because it's all by God's grace. Nothing that we have done earns us any credit with God. Nothing about us makes us right with God. Only God's grace makes us right with God. So we see that salvation by grace must be repeatedly affirmed. We have to keep saying this over and over and over to ourselves and to others. It must be repeatedly affirmed because everything in us will shift away from that, re- from that truth. And finally, salvation by grace should be respectfully announced. Now, after they had all this uh, discussion and, and dissension, uh, the leaders there affirmed that salvation is by grace. And the, the, the leaders decided that they needed to announce officially their position or their judgment of the Jerusalem council. And, and so it, here's what they do. Verse, verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with whom, with the whole, and with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. So they write a letter to these Gentile Christians. And here's what the letter says. Listen. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicily who are from the Gentiles' greetings. That's kind of dear Gentiles. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some of our number whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. That is, they're telling them that they have to keep the law of Moses. It seems good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. In other words, 
not only are they going to send a letter, but to keep it from being uh, uh, counterfeited or substituted, the men are going to go also, and they're going to verify the reality of the letter. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Now, that's, that's the end of the letter. And I want to make sure you understand what they're saying to them. They're going to send this letter. They're going to also send a, 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 a several men to verify that letter. And they're saying, listen, what we're, what we're telling you is that you do not have to keep the ceremonial law. You don't have to be circumcised. But we have some of these, these, these uh, things we want to ask you to do. We're respectfully treating you Gentiles as believers, part of the kingdom of God. And so they're, they're sending this letter, and these, they have these requirements. You say, well, why these three requirements? Well, let's look at them. First, they said, don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, this was a question of priority. Don't put anything above worshiping the one true God. What was the main trouble that the Jewish people had had? Idolatry. It's why they were carried away into captivity. It's why they lost their nation, their land, because of idolatry. And they had, after having come back from the, uh, the captivity, man, they became extremely uh, aware and sensitive to idolatry. Now, this is a, a respectfulness to the Jews. Make sure that you don't have anything that reeks of idolatry in your life. Make God the priority. And second, they said, abstain from sexual immorality. See, this was a question of purity. Live your life in a way that is morally pure. In that day, you didn't go to a bar and hook up with someone. In that day, you went to a to a pagan temple and were involved there with a, with a temple prostitute. But you see, all of those things are related to idolatry. And it's, again, he's saying stay away from anything that smacks of idolatry or impurity. And by the way, folks, we've got a different standard in our world today. We've got a world that's worrying about homosexuality when we've got a church full of fornicators. People involved in incredible immorality. And listen, it is just as evil as any sin that has ever been upon the face of the earth. It's something that, uh, that God is displeased with greatly. And don't make other things bigger. Sin is sin. And he says, he says, stay away from that, abstain from it, totally. And finally, they said, don't eat anything that has blood in it or that has been strangled. Now listen, listen very careful. This is not a question of morality. This is not a question of holiness. This is a question of sensitivity. Sensitivity to the Jewish people who, as a part of their dietary law, were forbidden to eat anything with blood in it. And something that had been strangled had the blood still in it. And it was a very offensive 
to them. And what he is saying is, is, is as you continue your lifestyle as believers, yes, we're saying you don't have, we're not putting the law on you, but we're asking you to be sensitive to the Jewish believers where the, the, the gospel came from. And because, you see, many of these Jewish peoples are going to be so offended, they will never come to Christ. Be aware of this. Be sensitive to this issue. And our freedom in Christ never permits us to sin. And our freedom in Christ never permits us to willfully offend someone else. See, God's grace that saves us also transforms us. Let me say that one more time. The same grace that saves us transforms us. Grace not, is not just God withholding the punishment for our sin. God's grace is God giving to us something incredibly wonderful, a blessing that we could never even have imagined. It's God giving us a new heart, a new desire to be obedient to him, to do what is right. It's what we sang about this morning, you see. It, it's, it's, uh, it's from the inside out. It's when God changes our heart. And then we have a desire to do what is right. We're not doing it in order to be made uh, acceptable to God. We're doing it because we love God with our whole heart. And we want to be obedient to Him. It's a big difference. And see, like the, the choir sang this morning. See, there's a battle going on. Between guilt and grace, between law and grace. You see, and, it, and it's battling for a sacred place in our lives. And don't let guilt and don't let law have that sacred place in your life. Let grace win. And it will win if you receive it. You see, I want to remind you of a, of a passage, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The same grace that saves us transforms us. It, it instructs us, it trains us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness. It, it, it instructs us to, to live sensibly in the world. God's grace will change you. And let me say this. If you haven't been changed, you ought to be asking yourself this question. Am I really saved? Because God's grace all, that always touches a life and changes that life forever. Charles Ryrie tells a story about something that happened when he was still a student in seminary. Now, you may know that name. He's uh, the author of the Ryrie Study Bible, a professor and a, and a, and a preacher. And back then, he worked at a, a local boys' club. 
and he had a group of boys that he was teaching the Bible and, and uh, spending time with, discipling them, uh, training them. And on weekends, occasionally, he would take his leaders to a camp outside the city, spend some time with them and invest in their lives. And he was at that camp one weekend, and they had a great time on, on Friday night. But early, early Saturday morning, he kind of woke up, he heard something. And he went out of his cabin and he looked out, and out on the lake were some of his boys, some of his leaders, best boys, out there, they had taken a boat and were out on the lake. Now, they knew that they weren't supposed to be out there. And so he goes to the, to the shore and he stands there and he's just standing there waiting for them. Eventually they see him and they come in. They're, they're very quiet and they're just waiting to see what he's going to say. But he didn't say anything other than, uh, go to your cabin. I'll see you boys in the morning. So they went to their cabin and, 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 uh, Charles says, I, I began to think about what punishment I was going to give those boys for what they had done. He said, but as I thought about it, it was like God was laying this verse on my mind. This Ephesians uh, 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. And he said, I, I, I thought it. He said, you know, it's like I started to think of other verses that would justify, you know, giving them some, some punishment. And he said, I just have this battle that's going back, but this verse just kind of kept coming back to my mind. And he said, I argued with God. And I said, God, if I forgive them, they're going to think I'm weak. And he said, it was like God said, well, did you think I was weak when I forgave you? He said, well, no, Lord, I, I, I just thought you loved me. And he said, well, you know, if I do this, then I'm going to have to make sure that they promise that they will never do anything like this again. And it was, again, it was like God said, well, well, did I make you promise that you would never sin when you became a Christian? He said, no. No, God, you did. But, but you're God, you can do anything. And he said, you're my child. Imitate me. And so the next morning when the boys came into the, into the large room there at the cabin, he went over what they had done. He, he, he didn't ignore what they'd done, but he very clearly told them that they broke the rules, told them how that they had caused some problems for him. It could have been even more for their parents, for the, for the camp, for the club. He made sure they understood the seriousness of what they had done. And then he says, boys, today I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to forgive you. And they said, what do you mean? What do you, what do you mean you're going, to, you're, you're going to forgive? No, he says, you're forgiven. And we'll say, well, what, you, what kind of punishment are you going to give us? He says, I'm not going to give you any punishment. They said, well, what are you going to tell our parents? And he says, well, I'm not going to tell your parents. Well, when we get back, what kind of privileges are you going to take away from me? He says, I'm not going to take away any privileges. And they said, really? And he said, yes, you're forgiven. That's grace. And that morning, he says, I didn't even make them clean up their cabin. I went and cleaned up their cabin for them. So we got in the van and we drove home. And he said, over the next 
few years that I had those boys, those boys became my very best boys. He said, they always sought to please me. Not because I laid down the law, but because I had shown them grace. Now, like the story with the cutting of grass, there are two kinds of people in this room. There are people who like that story. And there are people who don't like that story. There are people who say, well, rules are rules. But the God who laid down the law for us also laid down his son for us. And let me tell you this. Grace is undeserved. In every instance, grace is always undeserved. Always. But what does God do? God shows us grace. What does he do? How can he be just in doing that? Because he took the penalty upon himself. And so he can always show us grace. And listen, grace is costly. Grace, it's free to the one who receives it. But it's very costly to the one who provides it. It was very costly for God to be able to show us grace through his son. And listen, let me remind you, grace transforms. When grace touches a life, it transforms us from the inside. And it takes away from our human achievement and it turns it into a response to God's divine accomplishment. And so that we do what we do because we love God and we want to please him from the inside out. And we don't do these things in order to be right with God, to be accepted by God. We do them because we love God and it flows out of that. Only by his grace can we come to God. By his grace, we can be forgiven day by day. By his grace, we can do what pleases him. And by his grace, we can extend grace to others. Here's my question. Do you have that grace? Have you received God's grace? If not, you can. Because what God is saying to you is that I have built a bridge. It's through my son Jesus. It was costly. It's a costly bridge. But now you have access to me through my son. And it's, it's, you receive that as a gift. You simply accept it. Take it. And the question is, will you? But you remember, there's something in us that just fights against taking that gift. There's something in us that says no. But today, God is saying to you, listen, come, receive by grace 
by gift of eternal life. And I want to ask you just to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment. And I want you to ask the question of yourself. Am I, am I saved? Am I, have I been saved by grace? Trusting only in what God has done for me through Jesus. Or have I tried to add something to that? Have I tried to add my own good works? I want you to ask another question. Do I want to receive that grace? Do you want to receive that grace today? Well, God says you can. You simply do it by faith. It's, it's an offer. And you say, God, I, I, I know that I don't deserve your forgiveness. But I want your forgiveness. And I believe that Jesus died in my place. I believe that he rose from the dead and that he offers me his perfect righteousness. Today, God, I receive that. I just receive that. I open my hands, I open my heart to receive it. Is that you? Now, you just talk to God. Some of you, I, I believe some of you just talked to God and you said that you talked to him and you said that. Here's what I ask you to do. I want to ask you to just take that a step further. Talk to somebody else. Tell somebody what you did today. Tell something. Give God glory for his grace. Tell someone. Tell someone you love, someone you care about. You know what I'd love? I would love it if you'd tell me, if you'd share that with me. Just come and tell you know, Pastor Kenny, today I, when I was talking to God, I, I received his grace. And I'm a believer now. That's all you have to say. I, I'd love to hear that from you. Lord, help us now. Help us now to receive your grace in the ways you've intended And I pray for those that are struggling with just accepting that free gift today. The Lord, you'd overwhelm it, that grace would win. And that you would be glorified in these lives. Lord, we pray you'd help us to receive the forgiveness you offer us. To be pleasing to you in our lives. And to extend grace to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.